Our guest today is Irene Tracy. She's a neuroscientist at the University of Oxford, using neuroimaging tools to study the neurobiological mechanisms of pain perception in acute and chronic pain, as well as how states of consciousness are altered with anesthetics. Until recently, she held the Nuffield Chair of Anesthetic Sciences and was head of the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neuroscience and director of the Oxford Center for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Brain. She is currently the warden of Merton College in Oxford and has recently been appointed CBE for her services to medical research. What is pain? Is it an emotion or a sensation? Well, it's a great question, uh, Paco, that has exercised many people's um, thinking for a little while. We currently think of pain as both, actually. I think historically people very much thought of it as a sensation, very focused on the injury part of pain. But as we've learned more particulars um, about its um, construction as a perception, as something you feel, we recognise that absolutely it also is this emotional experience as well. So we do think now of pain definition as a sensory and emotional experience associated with tissue damage or with the sort of threat of tissue damage. So again, just the, the, um, the probability that there might be pain can again, can elicit um, an, a pain-like experience. And why do we have pain? So an animal roaming around its environment it has to learn about it. And in terms of reinforcement learning, there's positive reinforcement where um, you do a behavior and then you get a reward signal. So you then reinforce that behavior. Um, but then if something bad happens to you, then you get a negative signal where you then avoid that doing that behavior in the future. Um, is, that, is that negative signal what we call pain? Yeah, so pain is this great teacher. Um, and I think the best way to um, answer your question is to again, remind people that there's two main types of pain. There's the sort of adaptive um, survival pain, acute pain, which very much fits with that idea that pain is a teaching signal. So you learn very quickly to avoid it. You learn the things that are gonna hurt you and you avoid them. Um, and when you do experience pain, you remember what caused it. So you avoid it again. So it's got this incredible teaching element to it. So that's sort of what we call adaptive survival acute pain that stops us from getting injured and stops us from being maybe killed, um, et cetera. Chronic pain is this other thing. I know we're gonna go into that a little bit later. And in that it's now maladaptive. So there isn't necessarily an adaptive purpose for it. So if we think about in this first phase of describing pain as the sort of what I call good side of pain, which is pain that is incredibly important to tell you that something's hurting, something's injured, you need to look after it, you need to protect it. That's terrific. And without it, it's very hard to survive, frankly. Mm. Yeah, I want to talk about that maladaptive side a bit more later. But before that, um, so we see most animals have this sort of negative reinforcement learning behavior where they know how to avoid um, things that have hurt them in the past. How evolutionarily Asian is this ability to feel pain and do they feel pain the same way that we do? It is evolutionary old and it is something that we share, you know, across across the, the sort of animal kingdom. Um, and, um, you know, if you imagine early days of, of animals existing, it's very important to know what in the environment is going to be potentially life threatening. 
Um, and one of the great ways to signal that would be for it to hurt, to make it so unpleasant that you want to avoid it. And it's so unpleasant you really remember in one training session, um, you're reinforced in that learning. So, so it is old, it is shared. Um, again, historically, and we can look at this across different species, how when you're building um, a nervous system to experience pain, where you see the commonalities and where you see it uh, able to be constructed again by sort of very simple old brain uh, networks. Obviously, as we evolve and we've developed more cortices and bigger brains, um, there's subtleties to extra things that can be brought to it. But the core sort of stuff that hurts, uh, driving again a, 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 a behavioral response is very old in evolutionary terms because of its importance and it's incredibly shared across the, the animal kingdom. And so do you think like subjectively their feeling of pain is similar to ours or? <laughs> Very difficult to know. I mean, it's hard to know even other, I don't know your pain, you yeah. know, so let alone um, outside of the, the you know, humans, um, you know, that's one of the beauties of working in pain is again, it's challenge. It is a subjective experience. Mm. Um, your pain is your pain. My pain is my pain. We can try and describe it. We can try and, uh, explain um, with words or with behavior what that feels like. But at one level, you know, you can never really know somebody's subjective experience. It gets into the sort of, which is why philosophers work on pain uh, and these very subjective private experiences. So, you know, you can match. Yes, people can describe things in similar ways. So certain types of pain experiences, people might describe, let's take two extremes as more burning warming or they might describe it as like lightning bolts and electrical so clearly those are two quite different types of pain experiences which you might have two types of people um obviously animals are non-verbal so it's difficult to know what what the quality of that experience is like but you know you can be clever with experiments so you can see extremes of differences that you could at least say well there's categories if you like of the experience of pain where they're probably shared but of course without the verbal it's very hard to know and what are the mechanisms involved in pain perception? And maybe you could talk about, uh, could you talk about historically, like what were the key discoveries in elucidating this pathway? Well, up until, you know, really 25-ish years ago, 30 years ago, we had um, obviously an awareness that the brain was important for constructing um, the pain experience, as we obviously knew for a while that the brain was very important for uh, allowing you to experience any uh, sensory or emotional experience and of course is the organ for cognition and thought and, and everything else and you know if we go back into the into the sort of you know middle ages again many people did propose the brain to be obviously very important for pain but our ability to actually go in there and get data and have a look in the humans required us um, to have different types of techniques and, and that really was the birth of imaging techniques or neuroimaging and there's many different flavors of that that gives you information um, in the living human's brain that can start to tell you two important things about how the experience of pain is constructed. The first is which parts of the brain get recruited as a network, which parts of the brain are responsible for telling you where the pain is. Is it on my foot or is it on my hand? What type of pain, what the quality is? Is it a thermal, is it a mechanical, is it more of a chemical? Um, how intense it is, how attention grabbing is it? How much do I don't like it? My emotional reactions, all these different parts of the brain or brain networks that subserve all those different bits of what it is that if you think about it, you experience when you do experience something painful. These are the bits that we needed to understand and unravel. And then we also need to understand the 
the temporal side of it. So the the organisation, if you like, on a temporal scale about which bits are recruited when, um, and which bits sort of come on maybe at the start, but maybe fade, which bits come on a bit later. So again, that dynamics of the experience um, is important as well. So spatial and temporal. Um, and of course, as we go into chronic, there are other things that we need to, uh, again, think about in the context of how the brain adapts and changes from its chemical, its structural perspective um, in the context of being in pain for you know months and years. But for acute pain, you know, that sort of every day, if you like pain that we all experience, touching a hot pan or cutting ourselves, um, you know, these are the these are the tools, these neuroimaging tools that are given us those two fundamental um, understandings of you know the bits of the brain that again need to be recruited to give you that what we call multi-dimensional experience of pain, the sensory as well as the emotional, the motivational, the cognitive, all those bits. And I think people until they when you think about, you know, when they maybe have a paper cut, you know, you're opening an envelope and you cut your 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 thumb, just think about what you feel and think at that point. It's actually quite a lot of things. And again, you need a brain that can put all that together. Why? Because it needs to drive the right uh, behavior and to make the right behavior that's going to be the most adaptive one, you need to make the right decision about it. So you've got all these complex bits of networks that need to be active so that you make the right decision about what are you going to do about that pain. So it's this complex set of stuff. And um, really, you know, it's been a 20 year journey for my group and other groups around the world uh, who've contributed to doing different experiments to try and unravel that and demystify how does the brain construct it. Mm. So we experience like many different types of pain, like a sprained ankle, a bruise, like headaches, um, and they all feel qualitatively very different. Um, do we sense them differently and it sort of funnels into the same pain perception pathway or are they all completely different mechanisms? It's a great question. I think we're still sort of unraveling that a little bit to a certain extent in terms of how um, different are the networks that subserve these different types of pain um, that, that we are able to experience. And I guess the simple answer is if you, if you know, because you can feel it as being a bit different, and you can describe it as being a bit different, well, then that will be obviously represented in the difference in brain pattern of activity. Um, but you know, doing experiments taking you know, 100 people with a broken ankle versus 100 people with a, um, you know, a, a, maybe a cut, and seeing you know, what's different and similar. This is, you know, the, these, these types of experiments haven't been done like that because we're still at the, the basic questions, I would say, of trying to understand really well just how the experience is constructed in any type of acute pain and then how does it go wrong in the big big medical problem of chronic pain as opposed to maybe finding out the subtleties of differences between those different types of pain experiences you've got um, it's not to say it's not an interesting question um, it's just that you know that you know in the priorities as ever in science you've got to decide what interests you and I think you know for the field they've been pursuing slightly different things um, but you know my answer would be that if you feel it's different of course it will be represented by a different uh, set of brain regions, but there'll be a huge amount of overlap which, that is encoding what's common to all of that, which is again a, a, a location ability, attending to it, making a decision about it, knowing that it's got this hurt like quality, uh, being able to categorize whether it's more of a sort of throbbing or burning or whether it's just short and sharp and fast. Uh, again, there'll be things in all of those um, examples you've given me where there'll be overlap and similarities, but then there'll be differences. And that will all be represented in, again, networks that we can now you know, disambiguate. Mm. So just to um, go into that mechanism a bit more. So when I, let's say I 
um, step on a pin or something. So do I have pain receptors on my skin and they sort of detect that and then transduce that into electrical signals? Is that how? Is yeah, but just a quick sort of tutorial on, on the sort of, you know, the, the system. So the first thing is you don't have, we don't call them pain receptors because pain only exists when the brain puts the signals together mm. and, and generates this emergent experience, this emergent perception. Up until the brain, we call it nociception. Mm. Um, and that's just a fancy term for describing things that are capable of producing a pain-like experience. So the receptors in the skin, so all of perception, for those of you who are not sort of from a neuroscience background, all of perception, seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling touch, all of this is built on what we call a free order neuron system. You have the bit that starts, which is transduction, and that's the thing that's communicating to the outside world and gathering the information. So it could be the receptors that are allowing you to feel lovely things that are touching you, like your clothes. Or it could be your eyes gathering the information, light, or your nose, like smells, or your tongue and taste. So transduction sort of gathers the information from the external world. Transmission is the next step, step two, sends it in, sends it into the central nervous system, along the central nervous system, so that it can get to the third stage, which is the brain bit, which is where the perception emerges. So everything's built on that. And in the pain system, we have exactly the same model, transduction, transmission, and perception. And in fact, the transduction bit, the specialized receptors under your skin and in your joints that can and are solely um, responsible for being able to talk to things in the external world that are going to hurt you. Um, so under the sort of three types of things that can hurt you, we, we tend to put them in three categories, mechanical, thermal, and chemical. And we've got specialized receptors that can talk to things in the environment. So bee sting, or putting your finger in a candle or cutting yourself. And they will then transduce those signals and send them in on the transmission and then the brain gets hold of them and ouch, you have that experience of pain. And in fact, just, um, just before Christmas, the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine this year was given to two of the giants in the field, uh, David Julius and Ardham Pataputian, who have done beautiful molecular biology disentangling and telling us what are those, those mystery receptors at the transduction point under your skin um, that can talk to things like heat and uh, chili pepper, the active ingredient like capsaicin of chili pepper, um, and even mechanical sensations, and give you that, that transduction apparatus that we call nociception. And then, as I say, the transmission, well, that's a very interesting one, because what, what we've learned um, about that is um, very interesting patients who have what we call congenital insensitivity to pain. They don't experience pain. And the reason they don't experience pain for some of them the genetic condition they have is they don't transmit the signal. So something broken, particular ion channel in that in that transmission element. So the signals just basically don't get in. And if they don't get in and the brain doesn't get them, you don't feel it. So again, historically, back in the sort of, you know, several centuries ago, um, people who couldn't experience pain were often, you know, performers because they'd jump off buildings and they would walk through fire and they wouldn't feel it. They generally didn't survive because they'd have horrific accidents and injuries, which they didn't feel which meant they didn't make the decision to look after it, which meant they then ended up with often internal injuries and bleeding and infection, and they would die. And again, I think this speaks to the importance of having pain signals to survive. If you don't have them, you don't survive. Whereas these days, obviously, they're well looked after, uh, you know, clinically and medically, but they've taught us so much about this important um, process, this free neuron system that enables you to experience pain. So again, these, these congenital sensitivity to pain patients 
don't have the transmission bit working. Doesn't mean to say that there are not other genetic conditions that maybe affect other parts. Um, but they've told us, you know, very important things about that, which again could give us targets now, maybe to 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 build drugs to again do do in effect what they're doing naturally to block bad signals, bad pain signals that we want to stop. But uh, yeah, the sort of you know, it starts with the transduction generally under the skin. Obviously, you've got that also in joints and inside your organs. But generally, we tend to you know interact with the external world through our cutaneous or skin system. So we've got this amazing, beautiful set of nociceptors. And, and the other thing that's interesting about them um, is that they're what we call polymodal, which just means they're many modes. So one of them can actually communicate with both a chemical, like the active ingredient of chili peppers, but it can also communicate with heat. And, and the brain, the poor brain doesn't know which one has bound this signal and set off, as you say, the electrical signals on transmission. So it just knows it's hot. So that's why you, when you are eating um, curries and hot spicy food, you experience that as heat because in fact it all starts at that starting gate point of uh, of those receptors and same for mint mint we think of as cooling why because the same receptor binds to the menthol of mint as cool the sense temperatures uh, talk to and the poor brain again doesn't know which one it is so that's why we have this um, amazing culinary overlap horseradish and mustard these all bind to these amazing receptors under our skin that are important in encoding again extremes of temperatures um, and um, as well as being able to in a polymodal way bind to uh, chemicals in the often culinary world which is really fascinating isn't it is that overlap like an important feature or is it like some accident nothing's an accident generally in biology remember uh, there's always a reason we might not know why and um, i mean some of the theories would be that some of these plants you know do it to as a protective mechanism um, Humans, obviously, we like them, so we do eat them, so it's not protective for us, but maybe for other um, animals and that, it, again, it would stop them from being, mm. being eaten. Yeah. Mm. It, that distinction between nociception and, like, pain perception, does that mean, like, we have quite, like, is it possible to control our perception of pain, um, like, our subjective perception of pain, despite getting the same nociceptive signals? Oh, it's a great question. It's as if I've asked, uh, it's as if I've given you that question, Paco, which I <laughs> So most of our research uh, in the early days of my team was to do exactly that type of experiment, give people exactly the same nociceptive amount of damage, say a temperature at say 49 degrees, 50 degrees for a few seconds, but change the context or change the emotional state or change the attentional state of the individual whilst they experience the same you know, um, nociceptive um, input and powerfully show that if the brain is in a different state, a happy or a sad, distracted or paying attention, or in a different state of expectancy, I'm expecting it, I'm not expecting it, that will really powerfully change the way that those signals, even though they're coming in and going up the spinal cord in exactly the same way, this time they're hitting a brain that's in a different state. The way it processes that signal is very different. Well, if it processes it differently, it's going to produce a different experience. And that different experience could be turning it up, turning it down, changing the quality, making it pleasant from unpleasant, hedonically flipping it, all sorts of things. So the power of the brain, which ultimately is going to control the perception that you have, is huge. And I think we didn't really appreciate that or believe it actually, that it was physiological, because we thought, well, maybe if people describe their pain differently, 
when they're distracted watching a film or listening to music, maybe they're just tricking themselves and it's not really real in the sense of changing the actual signals. And again, until we have neuroimaging, where we could actually do these experiments, take students like you, put them in my scanner, burn you, and then distract you or have you be very sad or very happy or whatever. And then we could show, wow, we can make the brain networks be really active or less active. We can change the pattern of those brain networks and we can do it all to the same input coming in just because we've changed the context or your cognitive state or your emotional state. And I think that's been very important work because it shows how nonlinear um, the relationship is between damage and perception. Uh, again, up until, you know, really we had these tools, we thought it was a very faithful relationship between the damage and the perception, a very one-to-one -one linear. Well, it, we absolutely know that's not the case. It's a very non-linear relationship, a very complex one, and that provides the richness then of the pain experiences that you can have. And I think that's partly evolutionary. We have that complexity and ability of our brains to do that because it helps you have the experience of pain that's appropriate for the situation you're in, because that will drive the right decision as to what you're going to do about it. And I think that's why we have this incredible capacity to have very many different types of pain experiences. And if I'm feeling pain right now, like what is the best way to modulate that and to decrease my subjective feeling of the pain? Well, there's many things that you know work for different people, um, but certainly you know try not to attend to it and um, and be anxious about it. Um, so doing things that again can take your mind off it and can focus on the positive things and things that make you happy um, help enormously. Um, because the networks in the brain that do that will help both release uh, for free, if you like, um, uh, other types of um, chemicals and things that will help calm down and settle uh, the pain experience. And it also helps you re, um, you know, in an extreme way, you can sort of reappraise the pain. So, you know, I, I do quite a lot of running, I've run a few marathons, and sometimes after a long training session, you know, my body's really aching, it's sore, but it's positive pain because I'm associating and what I'm doing is I'm reappraising that sore muscles and joints into something that's positive because it means that I've done a good training session, I'm reaching my target. And, and the brain is actually then driving reward systems um, that again, helping mask the pain. So there's lots of different ways that one can do it. Distraction's a big one. So whatever helps you listen to music, watching a film, not um, paying attention to it, not being anxious about it, not you know remembering that to focus on positive things and things that make you happy is really important. And then reinterpreting or trying to reframe what that pain means. Um, these can all help. I've also always wondered like why different people have different pain tolerances to pain. And is that like, so how sensitive our brain is to the same nociceptive signal? Uh, great. We, we don't know. It's still a big area of research, actually. So again, in sort of everyday acute pain, um, you know, there's no doubt people have different uh, pain thresholds to the point at which they say, ouch, that hurts. They'd also have different pain tolerances. So how long are they willing to just, you know, can they put their hand in an ice bucket type of experiment? Um, and these are a combination of genetics um, and again, genetic differences. They're a combination of your um, sort of upbringing and um, not just how you've been maybe culturally trained to describe your pain behaviorally, um, what's tolerated maybe in your society or not. These all shape, um, again, people's pain expressions. But, um, you know, in terms of what they're actually feeling, genetics is obviously a very big one. And I think people shouldn't 
forget and underestimate, of course, that the central nervous system, which is such an important player in the context of pain, this is a very uh, rapidly evolving um, system throughout birth to adolescence to adulthood. So all of your life's experiences are going to shape and sculpt the way your central nervous system develops to make you potentially more vulnerable or more resilient. And that's a really fascinating area of research that, that quite a lot of us are, are getting into at the moment where we want to we want to understand better that that development if you like and, and what what is it about life's journey that makes you better able to cope with pain or not. Mm. And in terms of that subjective feeling of pain, is that is other than just being a negative feeling, is it bad for the body? Like is it bad to resist pain when you're in pain or is it better to take painkillers every time? So again, you know, demarcating the acute from the chronic, let's start with the acute. You know, the reason for the acute is to tell you something hurts. So you need to be attentive to that. You need to deal with it. And that could be, you know, uh, as simple as, you know, it's, in, it's an infected area of skin because you've fallen over. You've got to make sure it's clean. You've got to look after it. You've got to not keep bashing it. So you might need to, you know, protect it and walk a little bit different to allow tissue healing time. So that's a sort of you know, classic protective element of why you don't want to necessarily mask it because you need to be reminded, oh yeah, I've got that sore elbow or knee and I should be careful for a little bit until it gets better. Um, and that's why we have it and that's the warning system. And of course, if it's very bad and it's, it's making you unable to sleep or go to work, there are, you know, sort of over-the-counter type things that can just help calm things down a bit to make it a bit better. But it's, you know, it's good, important to have that trigger there so that you're reminded, oh yeah, I've got that bad bit that I need to let heal so you're protective of it. Chronic pain of course is something entirely different um, with you know this this where it's just basically the system gone wrong and it's you know the disease of chronic pain and the people are tragically in pain for you know big chunks of their lives. You know this is now you know there is no warning system there short of the fact that you've got this condition um, and therefore we need to put all our efforts into providing relief uh, for those individuals. Uh, we don't have many options sadly uh, there, but lots of work and research being done to make that situation better. Mm. So let's talk about chronic pain. Like, in people with chronic pain, are they in pain constantly all the time? And how does how does this come about? It's a mixture of types of again pain experiences. For some, it will be you know there constantly, twenty four seven. For some, it will come and go, um, and in and times you know and it could be that it's there and then there's peaks as well there's a whole array of types of um, symptoms as well as um, again the way those are, um, are being felt in terms of time so it's not a simple you know this is what it is um, <clears throat> how does it come about well this is again another area of very active research because it is you know one of the biggest medical health problems we have one in five have chronic pain, which is defined, again, the definition of chronic pain is pain that's still there after normal tissue healing time of about three to four months. So if after three to four months, you've still got pain symptoms and that's um, fairly persistent, then you're defined as having chronic pain. So your conditions like, you know, um, the must have lethal things like osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, people who have nerve injury that could come about by having maybe diabetes, so damage to their nerves, or they might be on chemotherapy agents and the chemotherapy agents are damaging their nerves, or they might have conditions like multiple sclerosis, or they might have fallen over and just, you know, on their bike and pulled a nerve. All these different ways that you can damage nerves 
uh, through disease or through, um, again, different types of drugs or through injury, um, creates a group of chronic pain called neuropathic or nerve injury pain. And then we have a third category of pain. So you've got musculoskeletal nerve injury, and then we've got the what we call functional pain uh, disorders where the, you know, you're not quite sure what's causing them. Um, and, and those would be things like irritable bowel syndrome and fibromyalgia. And for all of these pains, it's a mixture of complex different mechanisms that have gone wrong. And I think historically, where we were at is that, you know, these were very much uh, symptoms of the condition. And if you fix the condition, the symptoms would go away. Well, that sort of hasn't worked. So now we're more of the mind that, you know, when, when the pain's just there now all the time, uh, and you're still needing to treat maybe the diabetes or the cancer or something else or fix the injury, but the pain's still there, then pain's taken on this life form of its own. So there's been some redefinitions now of chronic pain to reflect the fact that some pain conditions are pain conditions, they're chronic pain, that's a disease in its own right. And others are still the symptoms of the other thing. And this is important because it means you, you now need to be more um, nuanced in where you're targeting it based on whether the pain's got this life form of its own and you need to target that and those mechanisms that are maintaining it as opposed to being more secondary and that more of a symptom of something else. Still with lots of things that go wrong and mechanisms that you need to still target. So lots of knowledge, I would say, you know, now about how we are thinking about chronic pain under those three broad categories, but of course they all share mechanisms and it's a bit mixed. And also um, what the journey's been, you know, what is it that's going wrong at a mechanistic level, both at that, again, transduction, transmission and perception level, that is important for who is that one in five that started off in the acute phase but ends up chronic. What is it about them? What is it that's happened? What is it mechanistically that's gone wrong? That's a big area of research. And I've been some great new discoveries, which gives us new targets, new things to try and fix. But it's very much um, a work in progress in terms of, again, what we're discovering about very much the mechanisms now of chronic pain. Mm -hmm. Where are they common? Whether you've got osteoarthritis or a nerve injury pain or a functional pain, where are they different? And these are all important things for us to better understand with all our different techniques from genetics through to neuroimaging so that we have a suite of now targets that we can develop new therapies to uh, hit. And those therapies could be, you know, of a drug nature. They could be more, more um, new and different ways of doing cognitive behavioral therapies, so psychological therapies, physical therapies, really, really important. Uh, and again, surgical opportunities as well. You know, simple as giving a new knee, or a new joint to implanting or doing some brain stimulation or something to again try and alleviate pain. So really big medical health problem, biggest, huge, you know, one of the biggest we've got now in the world, huge cost for society, hundreds of millions of euros per, per annum in Europe, treatment and management, and people not being able to go to work because of their migraine or their backache. And in the US it's you know um, hundreds of you know um, millions of dollars. So it's a huge, huge ticket item. Um, and and the suffering is just enormous. So on both levels, you know, the suffering, um, the numbers, and the economic burden. This is why there's many big now initiatives to try and better understand chronic pain and come up with new therapies. Do we understand like why um, why some why some people develop chronic pain and others don't, and can we predict who will develop chronic pain? Not yet, but that's that's uh, that's sort of the latest current sort of leading edge research that, that several uh, teams are working on, both again, is there genetic, is there a genetic disposition, is there an epigenetic thing, um, which is sort of you know, how you're playing out the, the genetics, is there a 
again, for me, we're working very much on how is it that from birth to adulthood, your central nervous system maybe gets shaped and altered or influenced such that you have a vulnerability, such that if you do get injured, you're going to be the one in five. And, you know, we've got some interesting data and some interesting leads, uh, but all of this over the next um, few years will be verifying. And that would potentially put us in a place where you would be able to say to somebody, you know, you, because of this thing that we can measure you is, is how you are, you're going to have a heightened probability of if you have this particular, you know, thing, you might end up in a, in a persistent pain state. And then, of course, the, the, the challenge will be, what do you do about it? How can you mitigate that? How can you, you know, um, make sure that they don't become the one in five? So this is going to be, I think, you know, um, well, this, I think, will dominate sort of the next era um, in, in the pain research world. So it's a great question. Mm. You mentioned that uh, pain is this subjective experience that you don't even know if I'm feeling pain. How do we measure pain in the lab and clinically? Yeah, so the, the you know, you've got several categories. The, the first one is obviously if the person can talk, then you ask them to describe it, right? And you use scales, um, use questionnaires. So, you know, very simple level, you know, you can do a zero to 10, zero is nothing, 10 is excruciating, and you have intensity dimensions and unpleasantness dimensions, and you will capture somebody's rating. Obviously, that's very crude. When, when we're thinking about the complexity of pain, as I've just described, you know, to, to, for somebody who's been living in this condition for, you know, years, and it's dominated their life, and they've maybe lost their job and their family relationship, and et cetera, to make them capture all that on a 10-point scale evidently is not doing a good job. So that's why we have other ways of measuring it, which would be more questionnaires with lots of questions so they could better describe the pain. So verbal and subjective reporting um, using scales and questionnaires is a big one, is a big, big, big one. Obviously, then there's observance of behavior, and that might be walking differently and other types of facial grimacing and expressions. This will be very important when you're more trying to assess pain in a laboratory setting, say an animal research or a veterinarian, in terms of assessing whether you know your dog is not well, you'll be using again um, behavior and inferring from the behavior what you think might be going on. And then you've got the sort of physiological measures. So that could be very crude from just you know heart rate changes or you know again different types of um, physiological changes, you know, in terms of skin reconductance and things that would give you an idea that something's not quite right, this person's uncomfortable, breathing rate, fast breathing, et cetera. Um, and generally, and then of course, got the advanced in the lab ways where you've got you know, techniques like neuroimaging and uh, electroencephalography and magnetoencephalography and um, you know, lots of different types of other ways that, that we could then go in and probe. But that's very much at the sort of expert research level, sort of your, your standard lab or your standard clinic um, will be very reliant in humans on again those verbal reports and if they can't speak if they're like a toddler you might have a picture a set of faces that go from unhappy to happy and you ask the child to pick which one best matches how they feel and these are very crude but they can be you know good enough for the for, for the purpose of at least knowing whether they're in extreme distress or not but all of them are again indirect they're all you know subjective you're inferring what you're measuring from this about what might be going on and that's why we need to always in parallel keep developing new ways of actually getting the data. I call it under the bonnet, behind the scenes, actually what's going on in that central nervous system. There's new and better ways of actually 
having more of these more advanced techniques that are sitting in labs become more commonly available um, you know, in the clinic for everyday use. And again, that's something we need to be doing more and more of. Do you think that, um, that it's technology and our knowledge that is limiting the creation of this objective measure of pain? Or do you think that because pain is so subjective, it's fundamentally impossible to ever have an objective measure? So you can't, as I teach all my students and postdocs, is you know, you'll never objectify a subjective experience because by definition, you can't. That's a slight sort of um, um, uh, you know, roundabout sort of thing. Uh, you, you, again, you, you, a subjective experience is a subjective experience. What you can do is, object, is get objective information or data that, again, is under the bonnet, behind the scenes, that helps you explain why their subjective experience might be a particular way. And that's really powerful. That means you've got, again, additional information to help you understand why they're describing their pain in their way. And that's where, and that's how I think of what we do, is that's, that's its use. So yes, we'll have better tools, we'll have more tools, we'll have more refinement in our capability of measuring at ever greater resolution, temporally or spatially or neurochemically, what's going on. But there'll always be that leap uh, that uh, to, to you know that you've got to accept. You know you'll never quite know, and and because that is you know that is their private experience. Um, so you, you'll get pretty close to being able to describe it, but uh, there's always an element of mystery. You mentioned these imaging techniques as well. Like how do we? How, briefly, how do they work, and how can we sort of relate what we see? like in the imaging um, to the pain signal? Yeah, so the, the broad neuroimaging techniques uh, tend to fall into two categories. One is measuring the actual um, electrical activity, which is the main route by which uh, neurons are talking to each other and sending information around. So those would be techniques like uh, EEG or electroencephalography or magnetoencephalography. And there you're getting information at the time scale that they're talking to each other. You don't have as good spatial resolution, but they're very good uh, at telling you when something is going on roughly here and then there. And that, again, is tapping into um, a fundamental way that the brain is working, which is to build and measure its electrical activity. Now, for neurons to work and to do all this busy chatting and neuronal firing, that's costly um, energetically and metabolically. So you've got to feed the neurons, you've got to give it glucose and oxygen. And the way that the body does that in animals is to deliver oxygenated blood to those parts of the brain that are working. So another suite of imaging tools measure that side of the response, which is the blood flow response. So they're blood flow mapping techniques. Now, um, they give you better spatial resolution so you can see where it's happening, but they don't give you very good temporal resolution. And that's because the lag time between one bit of the brain talking to another, which is happening on you know, milliseconds, uh, it takes several seconds for the blood to increase its flow to those different regions that need to be fed. So the way I describe it is it's like you get a, a photograph. Um, say I'm looking and lecturing and I've got 150 students in front of me. I can take a photograph of them and I've got really good information spatially about which student is sitting in each seat. But what I don't have on that photograph, which would be the type of thing I'd get, say, from my blood flow mapping methods, good spatial resolution, I don't have any information in that photograph about what order the student came in and sat down. 
So I had no temporal information about which bit of the brain went first and then second and third and fourth. I had no information about which student came in and sat there, 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 and then there. The other techniques can give me that, but they can't tell me where they are. So what we tend to do, and we've done experiments, where we bring the two techniques together called multimodal imaging. So more and more we're developing now ways that we can better work together or capture simultaneous information so that you can have both the temporal and the spatial. Um, they're more challenging experiments, but you can imagine that gives you the richness then um, that, that is what we sort of need if we're going to keep improving our understanding of the networks that observe this complex experience of pain. And I guess there's a third category, which again is used, uh, it can fall under again, either the blood flow mapping techniques. Um, again, I won't go into the details of too much here because you need sort of diagrams to show it, but the, the blood flow mapping techniques, which generally sit under the uh, commonly now the magnetic resonance methods. These magnetic resonance methods both can give you the blood flow mapping techniques, um, but they can also give you neurochemical information as well. So you can look at the chemistry of the brain in different regions. And then other blood flow mapping techniques like positron emission tomography can give you not just the flow mapping, um, although that tends to be done now by functional magnetic resonance imaging more, but what PET or P positron emission tomography can do is exquisite information if you've got the right sort of um, a, a pet chemical about the types of receptors in the brain and the different types of receptors in the brain that are important for again the neurochemistry of the brain so you know really important neurochemicals in the brain and neuromodulators in the brain that are part of the chemistry of how the brain's working so people might have heard of dopamine and opioids and serotonin and all these different things well you can you can look at that and measure that at a receptor level or at a, indirectly at a sort of um, how much of those chemicals are being released and those techniques can give you then this in this third window, I'd say, in the brain, outside of the electrical, the blood flow, it's this neurochemistry of the brain. Um, and that's very exciting because, again, in, in more disease states, this is important for us to understand it's just a sick brain that gets unwell. I wanted to congratulate you as well on recently being appointed CBE for your services to medical research. I know it must be a huge honor. Um, what are the current problems that you are working on and what are some of the problems that uh, you wish to tackle in the future? Well, um, <clears throat> there's always more on my list than we have time to do. Uh, but uh, but yes, yeah, so some of the so, so the questions around vulnerability and resilience, I think these are really important um, questions for us to address. And we have the opportunity to look at that now with um, an opportunity using what we call UK Biobank, this very large cohort um, that's been collected um, over the past few years. Um, within the UK, it's, it's half a million people have been looked at um, from their you know, socioeconomic background and their lifestyle and their genetics. And then we're looking at things about their heart health and their brain health. And then 100,000 of them are having their brains imaged. And um, the lab that I've been a big part of is, is, is been spearheading that. It's been a terrific success. I think we're up to virtually half of the data being collected. All of this data that looks at the brain structure and function is being put um, on an open, accessible database that people can just you know look at it and ask interesting questions and explore it. And of course, what you can do is you can link those brain uh, pieces of information to again the individual's genetics and lifestyle and of course out of that group sadly many will have different pain conditions some will not but will develop it so we can start to ask the questions on a scale that I could never collect the data I mean our data sets tend to be 20 25 but this is a hundred thousand <laughs> so you can ask questions that I'd never be able to ask 
um, of that data set in terms of what what type of brain you know so those questions you're asking you know what's what really is the subtle difference in brain networks whether you've got this type of flavor of pain as opposed to that flavor of pain we can ask those we can also ask the question about what making somebody's brain resilient or vulnerable to developing a persistent chronic pain so those are some big questions that we're we're addressing at the moment and um, in parallel right now we've got a, a clinical trial that we're we're running and again we're very very keen always to help improve the way we try and pick which of the drugs of the future that are going to work so we've done a lot of work using imaging as a really good tool to tell you whether your drug has got on target you know is it actually got into the brain is it hitting the bit of the brain that you want it to calm down um, and so that's been a big piece of our work so we're doing a lot of work with industry to try and again help improve um, analgesic drug discovery and make sure that we can get drugs out that are going to be beneficial to patients. Um, so those are just two things. And then there's a third area that we've been always working on, and, and this is very much led by uh, one of uh, the postdoc that worked with me, but now is leading uh, her own independent team, uh, Katie Warnerby. And this is around our work on anesthesia and consciousness and how anesthetics produce altered states of awareness. Initially, we were interested in it in the context of pain, because obviously that's a big one you don't want when you're under the knife. Um, but we discovered lots of really fascinating things about how the brain switches itself off under anaesthesia. And we have a very exciting patent on that work that we're really hoping to translate out to the clinic as an actual first individualized brain-based measure of um, anaesthetic unawareness that could be used in the operating room. So this work, which Katie's leading with a team and I'm still involved with it uh, very much. And, 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 and we're hoping now to do a, a trial uh, in patients in New Zealand, <clears throat> and that should hopefully start with a, a colleague, Jenny Slay, soon. And that's going to be really exciting because that's sort of where we're, we're taking a really beautiful blue dust, blue sky discovery all the way through, uh, hopefully to delivery. And we'll see how that goes. I have to come back maybe in a year or so and let you know whether that's worked out or not. But that's going to be super interesting and very translational, um, which of course is where my heart is as a, as a neuroscientist. I'm a discovery neuroscientist. But I also really like my work to be translated for the benefit of patients. And so I'm a translational neuroscientist. And, and I think those are a few examples of where our work is, I think, at this stage now matured to a place where we're starting to do the translation bit. And I, I just hope it, it plays out and brings benefit. Always interesting to hear a neuroscientist say the word consciousness. <laughs> Everybody's avoiding that because that gets you down a rabbit hole. So it's about how anesthetics work. Yeah. Um, about like the more social aspects of pain, do you think that being able to experience pain is something that brings humans together? It seems it's like it seems like seeing that something has the ability to feel pain would make me empath empathize with them a lot more. So, if, like if you imagine if I killed mosquitoes and every time I killed one, it screamed in pain. I think I'd have a lot more second thoughts about swatting. Yeah. So it seems like the expression of pain is something that like deeply connects us to the human experience. You're absolutely right, Paco. You're absolutely right. You know, we are social beings and to feel, you know, there's a reason we experience empathy. And in fact, when somebody has an empathic reaction to somebody else's pain, these experiments we've not done, but um, were done by another group um, many years ago and repeated in, in different groups, you, your brain networks and your empathy brain networks, um, they don't overlap completely with the physical pain networks, but there's a, there is a, there's a, com, you know, there's some commonality because you're really feeling that pain and you sort of know it when you're, 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 oh, you see something, you know, that somebody had a terrible injury. 
And that's important because, again, as social animals that are codependent, the importance of being able to, again, know that if you express your pain behaviourally, somebody will, it will elicit a caring response and they will look after you. Um, and vice versa, that you then are prompted to guard and look after. So this preserves, again, you know, that, that sort of social network and, and fabric of society. Of course, it can also go wrong because, again, in some amazing experiments being done in, in, in animal research where the, the, there's a gender difference in that. So in some instances, um, it's not beneficial to show any expression of pain because that would show that there's a potential vulnerability there. That you're injured and therefore you know you're you're going to be at this point a bit weaker in a, your ability to compete and fight so amongst males um, again in, in some other types of species um, again that that expression is altered whereas in females it's not because they will elicit a different type of reaction of nurturing and caring really fascinating um, and i think again that's something that you know we we tend to not at our peril and cost think too much about the gender differences but it's another area that we need to think about more i think in, in the human side of things um and so again it's not it's not all good that everybody's empathic or it's all good that everybody drives a caring response actually there can be some counter and you can sort of see the logic of that in a survival type survival environment yeah that's so interesting um one final question what advice do you have for young scientists well, just enjoy the science. Uh, I know that sounds really catchphrasy. Um, you know, I think, and, and it is something I do just say still to members of my team, you know, pick, you know, make the decisions. Um, you know, first of all, expose yourself, be open about trying new things and, you know, getting as much experience as you can, because until you've sort of tried a few things, you're not going to know what's really going to be the thing that drives you in the morning that you're passionate about. So, you know, be open um, to new experiences and new types of opportunities by working with different groups or talking to different things or reading different papers outside of the curriculum. And, and when you find the thing that you just can't put down and you just can't stop thinking about, then you know you've, got, you've locked onto the thing that's going to be your passion. And then just go for it and, and keep making decisions where you know that this is something you're going to be really enjoying doing um, for the next few years. And don't worry about the long term. I think a lot of students these days worry too early about how life is going to pan out and you know I, I still only make decisions that are you know good for this immediate period that I feel I can contribute that I know that I've got you know something to offer that I'm going to enjoy and I'm not worried about the long run you know life will work itself out and if you keep making decisions that are decisions that you know you're going to be enjoying what you're doing and you can do something well and you've got a skill set to do it trust me it'll sort of work itself out success will breed success so keep 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 open to new ideas, try new things, try and find the thing that, you know, really you're passionate about. If you're very lucky, uh, you'll find that um, and, uh, and then just keep enjoying it and, um, and, and be bold. You know, don't be shy about, you know, don't do the me too experiment. Don't do the sort of next obvious thing. Take some time. Again, students always wanting to do quickly, quickly collect data and get new experiments going. Take the time to have a good think. What's the really big, interesting question? Because if you're going to put all this effort in, which it is to be a scientist, um, you want to be you want to be putting it into the, the big questions. So be bold and and don't be yeah don't be timid. Um, go for, go for the big questions. But to do that, you've got to give yourself time to think about it. So don't underestimate reflection time. Irene, it's a huge honor. Thanks for coming on this podcast. You are welcome, Paco. It's been an absolute pleasure. Best of luck to you. All the best.